Go ahead and stand with me as we open our Bibles to John chapter 21. Pastor Wayne will be preaching from verses 1 through 14. So read John 21, 1 through 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to him, I am going fishing. They said to them, him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but the, that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, Cast the nets on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple, that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid, laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went abroad and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at what you have done in your plan, even before the foundation of the world, to make your grace known to us, to allow Christ to appear to us, that we may know him, that we may know the fellowship of his suffering as well as the power of his resurrection. Lord, let us celebrate this. Let us enjoy it and let us proclaim it. And Father, we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, you may have thought that uh, John's statement these are written that you may believe Jesus is the Christ and believing have life in his name was pretty much the end. But there's an epilogue. There are a few final lessons that need to be instilled in these disciples. You told us, Lord, that you would die, and you did. You told us, Lord, you would rise again in three days, and you did. You told us, Lord, to go to Galilee and you would meet with us there, according to Matthew and Mark. And so we have gone. That's what after this means. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee and revealed himself in this way. The disciples are no doubt relieved, if not excited, to get out of Jerusalem. I mean, when Christ comes to them for a second time and Thomas is with them, I mean, they've been hiding behind locked doors for a week 
in chapter 20. After that encounter, they go north to Galilee. They go home. They are all Galileans. And so this is like people who go to a family reunion in another part of the country, and while they experience uh, that they have there is exhilarating and is memorable, it's just always good to go home, isn't it? Even sometimes when I go on vacation, about the last two, three days, I'm just thinking, oh, I just want to go home. And that's what they have done. They've gone home. Now, the Sea of Tiberias in the Old Testament is known as the Sea of Kinnereth. Some believe because it is shaped like a harp. The Hebrew word for harp is kinor. In the New Testament, it's called the Sea of Gennesaret. That's simply the Greek version of the Hebrew word for harp. And it's often called the Sea of Galilee because that's where it's located. But it's not only an important commercial area. Because this uh, 13-mile long, 6-mile wide freshwater lake, I mean, it's called a sea, but it's pretty much a lake. It supports a booming fishing industry. It did in that day, and it still does to this day. And its semi-tropical climate makes it a real popular destination for those with physical ailments. Now, the Romans rename the lake for their emperor, Emperor Tiberius. Matter of fact, there is the city of Tiberias there on the, I think it's the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, this is the region where Christ comes to, to meet with fishermen like Peter and Andrew and James and John. This is where he meets Matthew as a tax collector in Capernaum, which is uh, on the north shore of the sea. This is where he walks on water. It's where he calms the storm. It's where he feeds 20 to 30,000 people with food that he creates right there on the spot. This is where he delivers the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This is where he heals large numbers of people, large numbers of people, because this, this tropical climate is a magnet for those who are sick. But this northern area of, of Israel had been conquered by the Assyrians 722 B.C., and so though it is a beautiful place, just physically looking at it, it is gorgeous. And the sea is beautiful. The area around it is beautiful. The mountains are beautiful. But it is a dark place spiritually. Galilee is, um, is where Joseph and Mary had their carpenter shop. And so remember when Philip came to Nathaniel and said, we found the one about whom Moses and the prophets wrote? What was his response? This, this Jesus of Nazareth, he said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And yet all of the disciples Christ chooses, all of them, with the exception of Judas, with the exception of Judas, all of them come from Galilee, every one of them. Now Christ makes his entrance into humanity, into the little town of Bethlehem, which is in Judea. But he who comes to redeem sinners will be known as a Nazarene. Nazareth of Galilee. He will come to an area known for its pagan lifestyle. He will call his disciples from this area. He will train his disciples for ministry in this area. So after dying to the just wrath of God there in Jerusalem, after ripping the veil from top to bottom in the temple, after coming forth from the grave the third day, he tells his disciples, go home. Go home to Galilee. 
I'll meet you there. And to be honest with you, that's where ministry begins. And I'm not talking about ministry as in pastors. I'm talking about every Christian is a minister of the gospel. And that's where your ministry begins is in your home. If you want to do great things for the Lord, if you want your children to know him, to love him, to serve him, if you want your children and grandchildren to join you, in his glorious presence for eternity, your ministry has to start at home. It has to. That's where, that's the first audience the Lord has brought to you. And then you can see where he sends you from there. So go home. Go home and do ministry. And Simon Peter, Thomas, the one called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. That's when Simon Peter said, well, I'm going fishing. And they said, well, we're going with you. When they get home, Peter says, I'm just going to go do what I have done all of my life and that I really enjoy. And the others who were with him said, well, we're just going to join you. And as I looked at this, I see this as a classic picture of ministry. Don't you? Fish are in the dark until they're hooked and dragged to light. And so think about it. We erected this building in order to worship. But we're not a, an architectural firm. We come as a body and we gather here to fellowship and to sing and to teach and to serve. But we're not a religious country club. We've got a purpose, a purpose beyond the time that we spend here together. Often in the Bible, the, the sea is just a great picture of the world system where the winds of doctrine blow back and forth, producing debris on the shores of people's lives. And our purpose is to go where they are, to cast to them the gospel, trusting the Lord will drag them to the light just as he did us. Peter says, I'm going fishing. And the guys who've been doing this all their lives said, we're going to join you. And then they fish all night and they catch nothing. Nothing. Isn't that a perfect illustration of ministry? We will never succeed in ministry at home or outside of our home, unless we do it the way Christ says. You know, that's one of the problems with the methods that, uh, that a guy named Charles Finney came up with, and he's had a great impact on this area because during the Second Great Awakening in the early 1800s, I mean, he come through here doing revivals, those camp meetings and so forth, with a host of others. And uh, he really believed, he believed that he could change you. And so he implemented these theatrical uh, techniques for bringing people to faith. Put the mourner's bench out there. Began singing, singing hymn after hymn after hymn, or verse after verse of the, of the invitation hymn. The problem with his innovative technique is that it didn't work. 
It had no lasting impact. It had no transforming power. Charlie could not change hearts. He said, well, that's just your opinion. No, it's not my opinion. The guy that worked with him, his partner, he sent them back around six months later to see how the communities were doing. And what he found is everyone was going back to the way they had lived before, right after the emotional event of the revival was over. He found that they were pagans who were adding faith in Christ to a very self-centered life. They were making Jesus all about them. And their profession of faith was just a matter of hypocrisy. Christ is the one who builds his church. He's told them repeatedly, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's why our goal here is not to build a church. It's not. Our goal, and it has been from the beginning, is just to be faithful conduits of his word. Trusting that he will build his church through our obedience to his word. That's why I come over here on Saturday night. I come on Saturday night and I just walk through here, back and forth, praying, praying for today. And the reason is, is because I know that I can't change lives. All, all I can do is clearly teach scriptural truth. Trusting that the Holy Spirit will transform then people's hearts as Christ draws men to himself. So we can't miss this point. Ministry begins at home and it begins with humbly understanding our role is to obey. Our role is to obey. We don't try to do what only Christ can do. We do what he's called us to do. So in verse 2, John tells us Peter and Thomas, the twin, that's Didymus, from which we get Ditto, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, also known as sons of thunder, and two others that he does not name. Many believe that it's Peter's brother Andrew, who's also a fisherman, and Nathaniel's buddy Philip, who had introduced him to Christ, that they all go fishing together. Now, the other four are not fishermen. Matthew's a tax collector. Simon the Zealot is a guerrilla fighter whose political party opposes the Roman domination of Israel. And I don't, I don't know that Thomas is necessarily a fisherman. It's just that he was left out once before. Hey, he's not going to let that happen again. I, I'm going too. They're back home now, not knowing when Christ will come. And so they go back to that which is most familiar to them. Let's go fishing. Now, should Peter be thinking, you know, there's just no way I'm going to be able to serve the Lord now. I, I'm not going to be able to do it. Not after what I did in Jerusalem. I mean, I literally humiliated myself there. I, 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 I was so arrogant when I, I boasted, Lord, I'm willing to die for you. And I tried to prove it when we went into the Garden of Gethsemane. And I, I drew out my sword, my macarion, and I attacked the servant of the high priest. I was trying to prove I meant what I said. And 
He rebuked me for that. And after he rebuked me, I, I went out. I was so heartbroken over what I was seeing taking place that I, I just cowardly lied. Lied. Lied three times. I denied I even knew him. I had no association with him. I mean, I'm used to putting my foot in my mouth. I, I've done that a lot. That's nothing new for me, but... This time, I mean, I really did it. I really did it this time. Should that be going through Peter's mind? Thinking, well, I'm just going to return to what I know how to do. The Lord sends him a real clear message. I don't know that that is going through Peter's mind. It kind of seems that way when you read the rest of chapter 21, which we'll deal with next week. But Christ is going to be real clear that I, I died for you for a purpose. If you think you can succeed in doing life the way you want to do it, that you're confident in yourself in doing, you better think again, Peter. You better think again. Let me show you. They fish all night. And they catch nothing. Cast their nets into the dark sea filled with fish. Filled with fish. Drag it to the boat time and time again. Same result. Do you know what the, the Greek word for nothing means? Nothing. Nada. Zero. For how long? All night. Christ told the disciples in Luke 5 that he'd make them fishers of men. But that was before Peter messed up. Kind of like Moses. You know, the Lord uh, chose Moses from birth for a purpose. And Moses thought that he'd messed that up when he, when he murdered that Egyptian. So he was sent to the wilderness for 40 years. And, and now the Lord comes to him and says, Moses, I want you to go back and tell him to let my people go. Moses, there's, there's no way, Lord. Not me. Number one, I'm a, I'm a mumbler. I, I'm, not, I'm, not a, I'm, not a, I'm not a good speaker. Number two, I am nothing more than a shepherd. They're not going to listen to me. Number three, I am wanted for murder. Tell Aaron to go. No, Moses, I'm telling you to do it. You don't tell me what to do. I'm the creator. You're the created. Samuel, go to Jesse's house and anoint the next king of Israel. Sure thing, Lord. Glad to do it. Hello, Jesse. I'm here to anoint the next king of Israel. Where is your oldest son? We're right here. Eliab, bring him out. Lord, is he not impressive or what? He's not the one. He's not the one? <laughs> Look how impressive. He's not the one. Okay. Next one, he's not the one. Next one, no. Next one, no. 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 Seven no's. Lord, you told me to go to Jesse's house and anoint the next king of, of Israel. I've showed you his sons. There's none left except the ruddy kid David who's out there 
tending those sheep. Go get him. He's the one. He's the one. Really. Jacob and Esau were both sinners. The Bible says that the Lord chose Jacob before either were born. Why? To prepare a people through whom he would give his law, through whom he would give the tabernacle or sacrifice for breaking the law would be made. Was he obligated to also choose Esau? No. To be honest, he wasn't obligated to choose Jacob. So why did he do it? He did it according to his goodness and grace. That's why. So let me ask you this morning, why are you here? Why are you here? I mean, couldn't you do like your neighbor? Couldn't you mow your grass on Sunday morning? Couldn't you go to the store? Probably not as crowded on Sunday morning. Couldn't you go play golf? Well, why are you here? Why? But for the mercies of the living God. See, Peter may not feel fit to fulfill the purpose for which he was redeemed, but one of the most critical qualifications for serving the Lord in any capacity, as all Christians are called to ministry, if you're going to serve him in any capacity, one of the first things you've got to learn is humility that's obedient. Humility that is obedient. So are you doing what he's called you to do? Are you trusting he, he will use your work to fulfill his purposes? Are you trusting that? Are you being faithful? Now, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was him. And so Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answer him, no. The sun's just peeking up over the horizon. These seven exhausted and discouraged disciples see this, this figure on a shore at sunrise. They can't tell who it is. And he calls out to them, Padilla! That's not the word for little children that he used in John 13. This is the word for, hey guys. If this had taken place in Scotland, he would have said, hey laddies. If this had been on a, on a lake in Ohio, it would have been, hey Ewans. Now those northerners talk. If it had been here in Kentucky, down here on Lake Cumberland, it had been, hey, y'all. That's Padilla. Professional fishermen. Men who made a good living by fishing in this freshwater lake for years. Why does Christ ask this? Is he trying to make a fool out of them? Oh, no, that's not in his character. Not in his character. Not at all. This is, this is not being derogatory. If you look back into Luke 5, when Christ first calls these guys to, to prepare them for ministry, 
What's happening in Luke 5? The people are swarming around Christ, right? And so he gets into Peter's boat, the same boat that's in the text today. And they push away from shore. And Christ tells them, let down your nets. And Peter informs him that this is not a good time of day for fishing, Lord. We have fished all night and there's just nothing here. We caught nothing, nothing. Peter, I didn't ask you for your opinion. I told you to let down the nets. And he does. And they caught so many fish, their nets were breaking. They had to yell for their their, their partners to come and help. They had to send out another boat to help gather in this massive, massive load of fish. So many of the boats began to sink. Do you remember how Peter responded? Do you? He fell on his knees. Fell on his knees. He said, oh Lord, I am a sinful man. Same response that Isaiah gave in the temple when the Lord reveals a portion of his Shekinah glory to him. And it's in that moment that Christ said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. That's when they leave everything behind, everything to follow him. They shut down their commercial fishing business. They put away their boats. Now with that in mind, watch what happens. Christ said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they're not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. When someone, they still can't immediately make it out who it is, but they see someone there on shore. And when that someone says, cast your net on the right side of the boat, why would they do that? I mean, if there's one thing we know how to do, and that's fish, we grew up doing this. We know what we're doing. We've been doing it all night. And it's not like this boat has been stationary. This boat's been moving throughout the waters. We've been casting the net here and casting the net there. And the boat has been moving. And so why would you say cast it on the right side? We've been casting it on the right side and on the left side and in the back and in the front. We've been casting it everywhere and there's no fish. No fish. Why would they do this? I ask myself that question. Why would they do this? When was the last time, when was the last time we were told to do that, Peter? Oh, no. You, you don't think maybe, is it him? I don't know. Let's do it and see. You remember what happened last time? And they cast the net on the right side. And there's such a large number of fish, they struggle to get them on board. And so John says to him, Peter, when did this happen before? It happened, John, when he called us to follow him. And he said he'd make us fishers of men. And so that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's how John refers to himself, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. It is, Peter. 
it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment. For he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. You know, I find it interesting that the Lord does not make the fish jump into their boat. Why? Because obedience is required. Obedience is required for ministry. The Lord does his work through his people. And as his people obey him, they are blessed. I'm not talking about in a health, wealth, and prosperity perspective. I'm talking about an inter-spiritual blessing. And John, who is recording this, remembers how the Lord did this when he first called them to follow him. Don't you remember that, Peter? Don't you remember? I'm telling you, it's him. There's no way it can be anybody else. No way. And Peter, who had stripped down into his workout clothes, that's what gumnos, that's the word from which we get the word gymnasium. <laughs> he's, he's, he's stripped down to his workout clothes by removing his, his tunic and his outer garments so that he can handle the nets, doing the work of a fisherman. And now he quickly grabs his tunic and he throws it on and he dives into the sea. No attempt to walk on water this time. I tried that once before, nearly drowned. That was during a storm. It was awful. This time, I'm just going to go the old-fashioned way. You guys bring the boat. I'm swimming. It's only 100 yards. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish. For they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. When they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. You have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, you know what? The net was not torn. 153, that's an odd number to record in Holy Writ, don't you think? Why is that? Why, is, why would John give us that detail? Now, I, I don't know if this is the reason, but an old Jewish tour guide over there uh, one time said that there's 153 different species of fish in the Sea of Galilee. How he knows that, I don't know. But he believed that the sea represented the world and the 153 represented God's kingdom, which includes men from every tongue, tribe, and nation on earth. So whether or not he gets the species, the number of species correct or not, I, I don't know. But I, I like his analogy. I think he's right on that. But why the 153? Why the 153? Could it be just another detail that John includes to let us know this is a real event to which he is an eyewitness? This large number is not some fish story. He didn't just estimate, oh, they caught 100 fish or 200 fish or 300 fish. No, he's giving you a specific number. They counted them. They laid them out and counted them one by one. And he's telling you the exact number. And you know what's even more amazing? The net, which was probably designed to hold about 30 to 50 fish, hauled in 153 and was not torn. What do you think the Lord was telling them? 
What do you think Christ was teaching them here? When I tell you to do something and you're obedient, I'll provide. I'll provide. I mean, is that not what he said to Abram and Sarai? That he would give them a child, though they were old? He told them that and waited 25 years before he actually did it. I mean, they were really old. They didn't have bottles back then. I mean, how's a 90-year-old woman going to breastfeed anyway? If the Lord gives an old couple a kid, he will enable them to feed that kid. You know how I know that? We do not read in Scripture that Isaac died from malnutrition. And you don't read that when Israel came out of Egypt, that two and a half million starved to death because there wasn't enough food or water in the desert. They didn't know when they obeyed by leaving Egypt quickly how they would be fed. They, they didn't know about the, the fire by night or the cloud by day or the water from a rock or manna from above. All they knew is the Lord said, go, go. He said, well, how do you know there's two and a half million? Well, they counted all the men. There was over 600,000. When you add wives and then you add children, they're estimating around two and a half million. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people the Lord is feeding every single day. He provides. And how many of them started well? Two and a half million started well. And how many of them finished well out of two and a half million? Two. Joshua and Caleb. So what's that tell us? It tells us it doesn't matter how well you start when you're baptized. It's how do you obey determines how well you finish at the end. If you've ever been to the Sea of Tiberias and eaten what they now call St. Peter's fish, you know that they weigh about two pounds each. So this is about 300 pounds of, of fish in a wet net not designed to handle this large a catch. Yet the Lord preserves the net and not one fish in that net is lost. Not one. Didn't Christ say in John 6? This is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of all he gives to me. Not one. Won't lose a single one. That's the basis of our, of our eternal security. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, you know, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. They knew it was. As we've seen previously, the resurrected body is molecularly different than this current flesh that ages, this current flesh that dies, this current flesh that decays. So at times it's really difficult for mortal man to quickly identify the, the, a supernatural body that can, that can pass through matter, that can travel through space, that can last for eternity. And yet that, that body still possesses certain characteristics that we currently have. Like we still will nourish it with food. And I find that to be very encouraging as I like to eat. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. You know, there's an interesting little footnote here that you might want to write in the margins of your Bible. If you look down in, in your Bibles in verses 9, 10, and 13, do you see the word fish? 
You might want to circle those three words, uh, the same word fish, and write out in the margins, Apsarion, O-P-S-A-R-I-O-N. That's the transliteration of the Greek. Apsarion, that's fish as food. But did you notice the word fish also appears in verse 6, 8, and 11? Circle those and draw a line out to the margin and write ichthus. That's fish as an animal. Yeah, we, we do the same thing today, don't we? I mean, we don't say, I saw beef running across the field today. No, I saw a herd of cows. But yet we don't go into a restaurant and, and, and order a cow for lunch. We order a burger, beef. The word absarion, this is in verses 9, 10, and 13, is the same word that Christ uses in John 6. Remember that? When he's feeding the 20 to 30,000, the 5,000 men plus women and children. And he's got five loaves and two small absarions, two small fish. Ichthus, verse 6, 8, and 11, fish as animals, is also a Greek acronym. An acronym for Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. When you take the first letter of each one of those words in the Greek, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior, just the first letter of each of those five words, put them together, you get the word ichthus. That's ichthus which was associated with Christ's calling of the disciples in Luke 5 and this post-resurrection event in John 21, where the risen Lord meets and eats with the disciples whom he will make fishers of men. Say, what? why? Why is that? Why, why, why do you take those first letters and, and, and put that together in an act? In the early days of the church, that was one of the ways to identify a home or a place where Christians would gather to worship. They would paint or etch the symbol of a fish on the door. As a matter of fact, to this day, you go into the ancient Roman catacombs. And they're covered with images of ichthus. Covered with images of the fish. Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior, who calls us to be fishers of men. That's why those who reject Christianity today will demonstrate their faith, their faith in the theory of evolution that is scientifically impossible by posting the ichthus symbol on the back of their car with legs. Have you ever seen that? The fish with legs? That's their amphibian. That's their amphibian that comes from an amoeba that emerges from a massive goo that has no origin. It's the antithesis to Christianity where life has meaning. It's the antithesis to Christianity where we are called and created and redeemed with purpose. To take the light of God's truth to those who dwell in a sea of darkness. So what are the lessons we're to learn from this? Well, there are actually 
two very simple lessons. The first one is Christ is risen. You say, well, you made that point the last three weeks. I don't want you to miss it. He is risen. He has appeared to, to, on five separate occasions on the day of the resurrection. He appeared to Mary of Magdala. He appeared to the other women. He appeared to the uh, disciples on their way to Emmaus. He appeared to Peter, and he appeared to the disciples when Thomas was not there. A week later, he appears to the disciples a second time when Thomas is there. And over a 40-day period, he appears to as many as 500 at one time. And John, who is an eyewitness to all of this, wants you to know this is the third time that Christ came to the disciples following the resurrection. He wants you to know that. Why? He is risen. And if he is risen, he is what? Lord. Who has conquered sin, Satan, and the death that sin brings and that Satan introduced into the human race. That's the first fact that we need to understand if we are going to succeed in life or in ministry in life. You know what that is? He is risen, so he is Lord. Therefore, our lives are about you, Lord, not about us. Wow. That's a very different message than what you hear from most pulpits and churches across the land. It's all about you. It's all about you. No, it's not. It's about the Lord. He is risen. Therefore, he is Lord. And we are called with a purpose. Lesson number two, he is redeemer. Christ is redeemer. He saves for a purpose. And it's not so we can go to heaven. That's a byproduct of our calling. We have been redeemed for the purpose of being fishers of men. So that means that we can work as hard as we like at being a Christian. We can work as hard as we like in ministry. We can fish all night and still come up empty at the end of our life, Charlie. You can still come up empty at the end of your life. Unless we understand Christ as Redeemer is, and you know this, you know he is the head of the church. Well, you're part of the church, right? Therefore, he is the head of you. In the head of me. Now, how are we going to know who belong to him? He said, well, they'll know you by your love. And he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So they'll know you by your love and by your what? obedience. Obedience. Did you notice Christ already had fish on the fire along with bread? And yet he says, bring the fish you caught. You caught what fish? We fished all night and caught nothing. What fish did we catch? Only the fish that came from obedience. When they did what the Lord told them to do. Don't let your life turn out like Charles Finney's. Who arrogantly thought that he could do what only Christ could. So rather than obeying Christ, he decided he would do things his way. He fished for souls his way. And he came up bragging about all of the decisions for Christ that he had, had committed. He claimed tens of thousands. 
His partner in ministry said, it's not so. It's a total lie. He came up empty. Christ builds his church his way through his people. So the question that we ask ourselves this morning, am I one of them? Am I? You know, Judas was with Christ in Luke 5. But he was not with them in John 21. Why? Why was that? Judas did not belong to Christ. Judas was just hanging out with those who did belong to Christ. Don't let that be true of you. Don't let that be true of you. If you have any questions, you can go to the Connect table. There'll be somebody back there to help you. I told the first service, um, I recommended this little book to them, and I told them there'd be a sign-up sheet for it and and found out there wasn't. (laughs) There is now. I went and got one, made one uh, between services. But um, last week when I recommended the Trusting God book, I I could tell just by the look on some of your faces, we're not reading that book. It's too thick. Um, So I I recommended the chapter that was in that other book, and I don't know how many we had signed up for that. But I thought, okay, maybe maybe for those that don't like to read, this is a really good one right here, okay? Um, It's nine chapters, about three or four pages per per chapter. It's by John Piper, and um, it, it has to do with uh, delight in the Lord through obedience. Delight in the Lord through obedience. Now, you say, well, why do you keep recommending these books to us? As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. What you believe matters. But what you believe has to also get to your heart before it starts expressing itself through your life. That's why I'm recommending those books. If you have any questions about any of this, you can go to the Connect table. They will get you connected with someone who can help you. And I'd be glad to meet with you this week, anytime, anytime. You just let me know. Let's stand together as we pray. Lord, thank you for accurately recording these truths for us and carefully preserving them, that we might cast out your truth through the teaching and preaching of your word for the benefit of those who continue to live in the dark, murky waters of a lost world. Lord, may we be found faithful in our obedience, in our obedience to you. May we hear you say, well done, at the end of our lives. For it's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.